I mean, you need to have a safe environment whereby you are allowed to learn and grow and make mistakes. In a psychologically safe organisation, you tend to see that blame is replaced with curiosity. There's a focus on growth and learning. It's not just about achievement. There's non-judgment. It's about looking at ways to improve and extend. But it's also key to actually business performance. It helps businesses deliver on innovation. It helps them deliver on diversity and inclusion. It helps them deliver on growth. Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean McCainbridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way. Welcome to the show, guys. We're super fortunate to have Naomi Armitage with us today. Really impressive individual. She's a psychologist by training. She's worked with not only some of the biggest firms out there in the mining and construction sectors, she's also had her own uh, firms, a psychology consulting organization. Um, so she's really big on growth mindset and how that uh, impacts uh, organizations, but also this notion of psychologically safe environments and cultures. So we're going to unpack that. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I uh, really appreciate you joining us here today as part of the show. Thank you. Naomi, thanks very much for joining us here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share um, some of the great information um, on a couple of key fronts. Um, but by way of background, uh, you're a psychologist by training. You've spent the last uh, almost 20 years working for the likes of BHP and HR. Um, but then, you know, for, uh, for 11 years, you were uh, a partner in your own firm and Griffin Psychology, consulting to large companies like BHP, Rio, Glencore, uh, John Holland and others. So you've got some fantastic experience and now you've kicked off uh, your new business going again, and uh, which is really, really exciting. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But um, I guess I really just sort of wanted to kick off with a question that's really near and dear in my heart and I think more people should understand you know, the notion of growth mindset. We talked about that a little bit before we kicked off, but um, can you talk to us a little bit about fixed and growth mindset? And uh, Carol Dweck, who's a, a famous sort of author on the subject, uh, the way she describes it is for some people, failure is the end of the world, but for others, uh, it's an exciting new opportunity. So, I mean, from your perspective and your background, um, what are the, the basic differences between the two mindsets? Yes. So, Sean, look, really fixed mindset is that belief that the basic abilities and intelligence are actually fixed traits. You can't change them. So, you're born with what you've got. Um, whereas someone with a growth mindset believe that your talents and abilities can develop through effort and, and persistence and that those efforts will be rewarded, you know, by change and, and um, mastery of different um, ideas or topics so they're very different when you know when you ask someone with a fixed mindset you know you tend to avoid challenges or give up easily and try and cover up mistakes because you believe that you need to protect you know the view that you may be the export or, or you know everything um, and often with that fixed mindset you don't believe that that effort will result in an outcome you just either have it or you don't have it so often people with a fixed mindset tend to plateau early in their careers because they don't go on to learn and develop. Um, so it's, it's, and, it's, and it's hard work to maintain that facade um, that, that you know everything and that you can't admit that you have made a mistake. Um, whereas someone with that growth mindset, they love to have opportunities to learn. They see it as, as an opportunity to develop. They accept criticism and feedback and they find lessons in their failures. 
Um, and they are the ones who sort of tend to, you know, achieve more and have that greater sense of free will and, um, and control. Yeah, I mean, I think the next part of that question is a really interesting one for me. And uh, being honest, I, I definitely think, you know, uh, sort of my teenage years and certainly my early 20s, I mean, it's fair to say I had a bit of a fixed mindset. Um, and then I, I had this realisation that uh, I wasn't happy with that uh, reality and I wanted to challenge that. And uh, I think in, in that moment I sort of decided to adopt a growth mindset, but literally it's sort of taken 20 years of evolution for me to constantly work at that to, to really shift and, and go from a, a, a completely different mindset to where I am today. And I think the results are a lot different and life's a lot better because of it. But, I mean, from your perspective, uh, how does one – you know, truly change from a fix to a growth mindset. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's, it's you have that. You know, that <laughs> it's a, yeah. <laughs> um, I yes. think I've, you and I've, I've talked before. You know, my daughter at her school, they're they're teaching kids about that. This is the school that she goes to. Mm. So, you know, my daughter has this concept that you know, you control your brain and what you tell your brain um, was really important because then it influences what you do. And, I mean, you know, this is a seven-year-old who's listening to her, you know, her sibling complain about her maths homework, how hard it is and that she'll never get it. And, you know, this seven-year-old turns around and says, you know, that's a that's a fixed mindset you're having there. You have a growth mindset. Say to yourself, you can do it. Break it down. <laughs> um, just keep that's trying. Awesome. But. But I think to be able to get to that point and do that, there's sort of two things. And, and as an adult, um, it's tricky. The first thing I think is you need to have the right environment. And by that, I mean you need to have a safe environment whereby you are allowed to learn and grow and make mistakes. If you're in an environment where failure is seen as bad or, you know, you can't, you can't afford to lose face because you're punished for that or ridiculed, then of course you're not going to practice a growth mindset, you know. So that environment to make mistakes and accept that that, that that's inevitable is is sort of that number one thing. And I mean that's in the workplace. That's about a, a boss who responds when someone stuffs up and makes a mistake. That that initial reaction that that the boss has is critical because it lets them know, look, maybe that's not the best, but look, no worries, we'll work on it and we'll find a solution versus a boss who will actually ridicule that person or punish that person for the mistake. So environment is the first thing. But the second one is is what you said, is, is actually embracing that it's a possibility and then just practic- practising it. Um, you know, instinctively we... We're instinctively we want to try and manage our self-image, you know, from when we're really little, when we're in a classroom and, um, you know, a teacher sort of talks about a complex construct and she says at the end of the lesson, so does anyone have any questions? Does anyone not understand? You know, that feeling in your tummy, you don't want to put your hand up and say, no, I don't get it because you don't want to look stupid because everyone else seems to be nodding their head in agreeing that they know what the teacher's talking about. We have this instinct need to impression manage that we fit in, that we know what we're doing. You know, we don't want to look silly. So there's that instinctive need to protect that, which really is aligned with that fixed mindset. So breaking that down and actually going, it's okay, um, I don't have to look good all the time or look right all the time is, is really against what we naturally are programmed to do. So you've got to sort of tackle that and feel uncomfortable and let go of your ego and, and have the courage to do it and, um, and then just implement it in your everyday language and in your everyday behaviours. And, again, if I can use that example of my daughter, she's so primed now to language and what it sounds like to have a growth mindset you know, she, she said to me one day, Mum, can you draw me a picture of a cat? And I said to her, oh, Isla, sorry, I can't draw cats. And she turned to me and said, no, Mum, you can't yet draw a cat. 
And I was gobsmacked that um, this daughter was was picking up my language. She said, yet, mum, is a really special word. It means you can't do something now, but one day you will be able to. So it's about incorporating a growth mindset in your words and actions, every conversation you have, um, and just practising it over and over again. And you might surprise yourself. Well, I think fantastic answer, and it's great to hear that your seven-year-old's really grasping that and, and tackling that. <laughs> I think uh, it would be fantastic if we had more seven-year-olds uh, getting their head around that. But, uh, you know, I guess sort of just summarising some of the stuff you sort of talked about, I think, um, you know, maybe for, for some, I think the first step maybe is, you know, having that willingness to maybe uh, move forward in, in a different light, maybe from that fixed uh, sort of growth mindset and that consciousness that a different way of thinking is possible and then maybe a bit like your daughter's going through and or others you know that uh you know the learning or the tools and and the and you know the courage to sort of implement some of those things and and create some of those habits but i think one of the things you sort of touched on a couple of times here is just how powerful language is and the words that we use how we how this describes our reality and how that sort of moves on to our behavior our habits and and all that sort of thing And and i think uh if I was a bit more conscious of the language, the internal language I was using when I was younger, I think it would I would have different conversations with myself about situations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great answer. But um, I want to I want to sort of move on, and obviously with your new business, uh, Humanology, um, one of the key aspects that you are educating and coaching on is around psychologically safe organisations. So, mm-hmm. can you give the listeners a, a quick summary of what are the key components of a psychologically safe organisation? Because I think we talked about earlier, it's a relatively new term, and uh, the more you sort of read, the more you find out about it. But can you give us a quick sort of summary on what, around what the key components of a psychologically safe organisation are? Yeah, sure. So, Amy Edmondson is really the the guru in this field, and really sort of put this into practice. Um, and she really defines psychological safety as that belief that you'll not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, problems, or mistakes. So, in a psychologically safe organization you know you tend to see that blame is replaced with curiosity there's a focus on growth and learning it's not just about achievement there's non-judgment it's about looking at ways to improve and extend leaders tend to see themselves in a very different light they see their role as helping others thrive and develop they don't see themselves as experts or the powerhouse um so so as a leader there's probably four questions you could ask yourself to test if you do work within or, or embody those behaviours of a psychological safe workplace. And the four questions I like to ask leaders about are, have you admitted mistakes to your team? Because in a psychological safe workplace, it's likely that leaders do admit their own vulnerabilities and mistakes. The second worst question is to ask yourself as a leader is, have you asked for help from any of your peers or a supervisor because that shows, again, that vulnerability and that that view that you're not a knowledge expert, you know, that there are things you don't know. The third question is, have you learned anything new from your team recently? Has someone below you taught something that you hadn't come across before? And the fourth one is around, has a team member confided you or asked you for help? Is that level of trust there amongst the peers for the people to feel they're safe to speak up and, and say, help, I, I don't know this or, or I can't quite get this? Those four questions are a really good test of, the types of behaviours and, and questions you'd see in a psychologically safe workplace. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting sort of answer because I think the historic uh, definition of a leader was maybe the leader had all the answers mm. and it was probably seen to be uh, weak or, yeah, not quite up to the task if seemingly you didn't know, but that sort of goes in the face of what you're sort of talking about there 
And I think, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later in terms of the, the modern leader, but I think it, it sort of takes uh, an element of um, uh, vulnerability, but also confidence within that and also putting the ego to the side to be able to do that. But obviously, as we'll talk about later as well, there's some upside if you can do that. So I guess, you know, I guess the next question uh, on the back of that is, uh, why is psychologically, uh, you know, why is psychological safety so important to businesses, and why should companies invest in this? In your experience, yeah. So there's lots of businesses that are, you know, I guess seeing this as the way. I mean, some of the common ones are, you know, the Google Aristotle project, which we'll talk a little bit later on. But they really wanted to look at what mm-hmm. was the difference between their high performance teams, and it was psychological safety. Another famous um, example is the Microsoft. You know, Microsoft have really embodied this concept of a growth mindset organisation, but to do that, they're actually operating within a psychologically safe climate. So, again, you know, the performance of their business is significantly different, um, you know, prior to that to that step change. Um what I was seeing when I was looking at setting up the humanology group, there's so many businesses grappling with all these initiatives. So they've got an initiative around diversity and inclusion. They've got initiatives around innovation. They've got production targets. They've got safety targets. And they're trying to get their leaders and frontline supervisors to actually run all these different programs with different, you know, learnings and education programs behind them. But the fundamental skill that underpins all of the performance in those areas is really psychological safety. So you think about safety. What is a safe, physically safe workplace? It's about where people feel that they can speak up, they identify a hazard. It's about then feeling like that's when they speak up, the hazard's being listened to and there's action taken to address that. That's what psychological safety is, it's that ability to speak up and feel like you're heard um, and have action taken. Similarly around diversity inclusion, the basis to a diversity inclusion is about people feeling like they belong, that they're part of a team, that they're safe, that even though they might have really different views and ideas, that that's embraced. And again, that's the principles of psychological safety. So if businesses try to simplify down and, and look at what's the thing that we're going to set as our foundation, if we really just work on building this climate of psychological safety, we'll hit all those pillars of diversity inclusion, we'll achieve our safety targets, we'll achieve our production and we'll achieve our innovation. Um, it really has, you know, a, a, obviously a, a business outcome, the performance is better, but also staff are likely to be more engaged and, and you're likely to retain them. And in the current climate, as you'd know, the market's hotting up. You know, it's more important than ever to attract and retain good staff. So you're also, you know, looking after your resources. Absolutely. Now, I think uh, some good components in that and we might sort of talk about some of the other sort of tangible benefits tying into that answer later on as well. But um, I want to just sort of explore uh, the notion of the modern leader and organisation as we touched on before. I think it's definitely evolved from what it has been in the past. And uh, I think you state that graduates today uh, are looking for environments that excite and ignite them uh, in the future. And uh, I think uh, maybe what was attractive in the past isn't necessarily attractive in the future. So why, in your opinion, is it so important, um, you know, to the bottom line of companies, in your opinion or experience, around, you know, creating this environment that excites and ignites uh, people? Mm. I think, Sean, you touched on it before. You know, once upon a time in business, you know, the leader was the person who knew the most, who'd been there the longest, who was really that expert in their, you know, in their field. Um, Now, the millennials, it's... It's not about that. They, they want to learn and grow and they might be experts in 
you know, six or seven different fields and, and, and take up six or seven different professions. So what they're tending to, to look for is more of that sense of belonging and, and being part of a greater purpose. Um, you know, they've grown up in, they call it a VUCA world, a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world, which is our current, you know, marketplace. Um, so millennials have grown up in this environment and they realise that there's lots of complex interrelations between, you know, products, services, and that um, not one person knows everything and that that's, it's ever-changing. So they really want to be part of basically, you know, a diversity around, you know, thought, around projects, having lots of growth and, and learning opportunities. They don't want to be stuck in the box doing one thing because um, that's not, you know, the environment that they work in. I mean, Gallup does lots of work in this area and I think um, – one of their stats I've just got here is 93% of millennials said that they'd leave their roles and they felt they couldn't approach their leader when they wanted to learn more or, f- or be stretched and develop. Um, and they found that 70% of the variance in employee engagement was actually attributed to the manager alone. So that leader who actually gives them that purpose, that vision, gives them that opportunity to learn and develop is really what they're looking for. Yeah, I think that's a great answer and there's some great aspects within that in terms of the importance of, you know, creating a clear purpose and vision, uh, that sense of belonging. And I think, you know, maybe aspects of those two uh, components tie into Simon Sinek's uh, notion of why Mm. um, and people, you know, buying and and attaching to a company's why, um, but also that learning environment, you know, people feeling like uh, like they're moving forward, they're acquiring new skills and they're afforded the opportunity to sort of uh, implement those skills um so i think some great answers within that and 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 i guess i sort of just want to take a bit of a a segue maybe picking up on some of the aspects that you sort of talked about already but um a couple of years ago i was lucky enough to spend a bit of time in silicon valley and i become really blown away by the lack of stigma around failure uh it was so openly talked about um and promoted and celebrated and it was almost like if you haven't failed then what's wring with you and i think that sort of ties back to the fact that if you're not pushing hard and risking failing um, and the the fact that, you know, the comfort zone is safe but it doesn't create companies like Uber, Facebook, Google, all these revolutionary companies, um, I guess my question on the back of that is how do leaders and organisations create environments that promote uh, some form of tolerance and control around making mistakes or I guess put another way, making failure a positive dynamic in organisations. What's your sort of take on that? Mm, mm. So, I mean, one of the famous, you know, examples is, is Microsoft and they've really embraced that that culture around risk-taking and they have one of the largest hackathons, you know, on the planet. Mm. And essentially what they're doing is they're setting their employees up to step outside their day jobs and cross-collaborate on some sort of action or idea, you know, in a, in a safe environment, I guess. So they've really, you know, operationalised that, that that's an annual event that, that is encouraged and embraced. Um, and it's in obviously in a, con- a controlled environment. So, you know, they've set the scene like that. But, I mean, there's lots of micro things that um, organisations can do. You know, it's, it's accepting failure as a success is, can be built by a leader's reaction to failure, you know. So, you know, when, when a team member actually, you know, comes and presents a mistake that they've made, that initial reaction that the leader has, you know, is critical around whether the person will actually take risk or ownership again next time, um, you know, it's funny. I had a meeting the other day with um with a, with a coaching client, and he talked about how 
they had this boss who let them have free reign. So they gave them heaps of scope and said, look, this project, you go away, you do it how you want. But if you come back and it fails, it's your head. <laughs> so that's not how to do it no. <laughs> um, because is that guy going to take any risk, you know, and, and doing something out of the square to achieve that project? No, you know, he's going to stick to the status quo. So that leader's, you know, messaging and reaction and how they frame those opportunities I think is really critical. Absolutely. No, I think some uh, some interesting uh, notes on that and, and, and I, I think um, just sort of building on that a little bit, uh, I think in life in general, but obviously this uh, transcends into the, the workplace, that uh, candor is rare um, and uh, one of the symptoms of uh, safe cultures is that, uh, you know, candor is, uh, you know, um, uh, a common um, dynamic within that. And I guess that's, you know, not being afraid to present ideas or being prepared to challenge the status quo um, and, uh, and not having any fear around that. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you create an environment or a culture um, where this is promoted, it's common, because I think by nature, um, you know, humans are maybe just a little bit reluctant to rock the boat at times or have that sort of fear of conflict and all that sort of stuff. So what, what's your sort of tips on creating, you know, those safe cultures where candor is, um, is, is a common dynamic within that organisation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's definitely a natural instinct, you know, to pre- preserve your self-image and not look like you're, you know, you're, you're silly mm. or stupid. Um, I mean, questioning is, is, is a really good example. You know, as a leader, what sort of questions are you asking? Are you asking questions that um, are potentially, you know, going to lead to judgment or, or a yes or a wrong or right answer? You know, asking questions as a curious inquirer is always a really good way of actually encouraging people to present ideas and, and um, you know, and challenge the status quo. I mean, if you take else you know again physical safety if you look at how questions are asked when an investigation is done in the physical safety space often you know the question will be something along the lines of you know you know have you identified any um hazards have you complied with the jsa or the standard operating procedures and what they're really asking is is you know a right or wrong answer you know yes i have no i haven't complied with the procedure that's why i made this mistake Versus asking a question that would elicit learning or, or, you know, elicit someone to say, hey, um, I actually, you know, have thought of a different idea and an innovative idea would be very different. So they might say something like, um, is everything as good as it could be today or how could you have made this any different or any better today, you know, the way that you did this particular job? You're really asking as a, as a curious inquirer, which then makes someone feel more relaxed and more likely to give an innovative you know, um, response and um, and challenge the status quo. Um, those little micro responses too, as a you know, the, the as a leader, when someone you know, I said a leader's you know, critical is your job is to ask lots of questions. That's the first job, and then the second job is to listen really intently. So when someone's replying to you, making sure you're actually listening to that person with the verbal and non-verbal, because you quickly you know you shut down someone quickly when you actually when they tell that they can tell that you're not listening. So, you know, often leaders are quite busy and they've already started to think about the next question they want to ask because they've got the information from the answer that the person said in the first two sentences. Um, and so they stop listening listening properly. Of course, that's going to shut someone down. They're, then they're unlikely to continue to elaborate. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting notions there. And I think uh, on, on the first one, you know, asking 
the right questions. I think generally, you know, people might have a predetermined sort of outcome they're looking to drive towards and they're just looking to reach that outcome and their questions reflect that. Then I think uh, authors like uh, Liz Wiseman who uh, wrote a book called Multipliers mm. and she sort of argued the fact or, or uh, presented the, the notion of, you know, the, the best leaders ask the best questions to get the best outcomes. But I think uh, equally important um, component that sort of supports that is that uh, act or art of listening. And I think uh, in today's age, um, when we're so busy, there's so much coming at us, we're so distracted, you know, really just being present and listening to sort of get those gems and the responses and all the rest of it and show the other person that you actually care enough to listen and engage in their response Mm. is just so critical uh, as a leader. Um, So I think some great uh, takeaways there. Um I was just going to add, one of the um, practical ways of implementing this I've seen is um, a leadership team had one of their KPIs in their meetings. Instead of having a safety share at the start of every, you know, meeting, exec meeting, they'd actually have a, a failure share and they had to share about uh, an incident mm. or, or a, you know, decision that they mm. made that didn't turn out the way that they expected. Um, but again, it was around actually, you know, letting letting the rest of the team know that they weren't experts. That it, you know, everyone fails. That they'd be happy to accept some opinions around what they could have done differently. They made that as part of their, you know, instead of a safety share, which is a really nice way, I think, of normalising and um, you know, really embracing that candour. And, and what happens when you have leaders do that? I mean, someone takes a lead and, you know, everyone may be a little bit sort of gun on the beginning. Well, what actually happens to that group dynamic when, you know, that first person sort of puts their hands up and, and notes a failure that, uh, you know, they could have concealed or whatever the case. What, what happens to that group dynamic in that moment? Yeah, so that's when you really see that, you know, that shift that they become one instead of silos. You know, you suddenly mm. see this unified, um, I guess, body where there's lots of sharing there's lots of you know cross-referencing they're drawing on each other um it really takes that team to another level and really moves them out of that silo space so and from a you know from a cognitive level when you're in that fear mode um when you're around protecting and looking like the expert and having to you know look like you um you know what you're talking about if you're acting in a fear mode your frontal cortex which is all your thinking brain your rationalizing you know your complex thoughts that part of the brain actually shuts down so you've got these people are employed for their you know cognitive ability their thinking ability and you suddenly shut that down when you then relax that so people feel safe to share and open up, you're actually getting that whole brain to operate in the one, you know, operate. So you're fully harnessing that resource. So you're actually getting more out of, you know, out of the individual. Yeah, sounds super powerful, uh, particularly when you put it in that uh, psychological cognitive sort of context that the fact that you're actually, uh, you're limiting your ability to contribute or think or be creative when you're in that fear mode and, and in noting that uh, that failure, maybe you're sort of just creating that normalised factor that failure is normal and everyone, you know, fails from time to time and that's okay. Um, so I think it's a great way to sort of start meetings. Um, so it's a, it's a good cheer on that one. Um, we talked a little bit more uh, earlier about about uh, Project Aristotle um, and it was reported in the Harvard Business Review. But um, for those that don't know, it was a study at Google to find out what distinguishes high-performing teams from low-performing teams. Um, and there was all sorts of things in there uh, or, you know, maybe um, uh, prevailing views going into it that, you know, where you went to school, the gender mix, uh, all those sort of common things you think would be a predictor 
uh, around human capital um, and how that might translate to human performance. But uh, the thing that they found was psychologically safe cultures uh, was the most powerful predictor to high-performing uh, teams or cultures. Um, so I guess just building on that sort of uh, study or that sort of, uh, you know, the findings they had in that, uh, what's your take on that and how have you seen this to be true in your experience here in Australia? Yeah, sure. I think um, I think that there's lots of this happening, but we just wouldn't call it psychological safety. You know, we'd call it inclusive leadership or, um, you, know, um, you know, blue leadership or, we see it all the time and I mean I was just reflecting um, about this particular company I was working with they had this one maintenance crew that was held up across the business that had like a fabulous safety record you know it was nearly a year without any injuries and the company was wanting to replicate this team dynamic across the business and when you actually you know spent some time with this team a lot of it was about the leader I mean the leader was a very humble leader you know, he was he was very trustworthy. He was calm, and he set a culture. But he really created um, a sense that everyone was, you know, part of this team and responsible for the performance of this team, um, and that everyone was in value was valued in the team. And in the interactions that I just had to him, you know, I had um, you know one of the maintenance planners come down and they asked this supervisor about a particular technical you know question, and instead of himself answering that question, you know, he referred to one of his team and said, you know, oh look, Mike, go and talk to him. He's the expert in that area. So he was really drawing on the resources of him of his team and made them feel you know involved. And interestingly, when they had you know catastrophic maintenance breakdowns or they arrived on the job and you know the job hadn't been set up properly by the previous crew typically what tends to happen is there's the blaming you know the other crew didn't leave the job ready you know now we're delayed that's why we couldn't execute on the task he never did that you know he he just totally even though there's a few grumblings he was totally focused on what's in our control guys what are we about how can we resolve this what's our action so you know, it wasn't like he was, you know, sprinkling magic fairy dust anywhere. He was just an extremely humble leader who actually had a clear vision for his team and really, you know, got them to feel like they were part of that and and, and were responsible for for um, getting the outcome. So I think there'd be lots and lots of those teams that exist, you know, across Australia in businesses. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great answer and there's some real simple stuff in there just sort of summarise what you talked about, uh, you know, being humble as a lady, leader, uh, being trustworthy and, and daring and creating that sort of culture of trust, being calm uh, as opposed to reactive to situations. Talked about being uh, inclusive uh, in his approach and drawing on different team members to help contribute to things. Maybe moving away from that sort of notion of blame to, okay, well, if there is a catastrophic event, what are the solutions? You know, what are the things within our control? So when you sort of break it down like that, it's not that complex it's not that crazy to get your head around but i guess practicing that on a regular basis and being conscious of that um that's the art i mm. guess and, and i no doubt that's what you help organizations with with your coaching and 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 whatnot but um i think that's a good really simple answer to, mm. to that um i'm, I'm going to play sort of devil's advocate a touch now so and ask you the, a bit of a question around you know how do you walk that that tight line between psychologically safe organizations and accountability, noting that both dynamics uh, are important and prevalent within high-performance cultures. What's your sort of take on on walking that sort of fine line between the two? Uh, that's a very. That's usually the first response, you know, when we talk about psychological safety. <laughs> you know, does a culture of psychological safety 
really equate to relaxing performance standards. You know, it's seen as soft. It's it's letting things go. Um, mm. That's not the case. It's actually, you know, quite quite the opposite. Um, if you actually imagined a, a matrix, and Amy Edmondson has a beautiful way of, you know, clarifying this in a matrix, and, and on the left-hand side you've got high psychological safety and low psychological safety, and on the other axis you've got high performance and low performance. What you typically see when you have low psychological safety where people don't feel they can speak up, where they don't feel like they trust their leader, where they feel uncertain, and then you have low performance, so there's not high expectations, you tend to hit this apathy zone. So people operate on autopilot. They don't really care. There's no discretionary effort. You know, it's just it's go in, do the job and, and go home again. Conversely, if you have high psychological safety, so people feel like they can speak up, but you have low standards. This is when people do sit in the comfort zone. So when 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 mistakes are accepted, when there's no real push to extend, people tend to be in the comfort zone and any of that discretionary effort, you know, they're using, you know, sort of searching Facebook or something. They're not thinking about ways to innovate and, and you know, learn or do something differently. Low psychological safety and this pressure for high performance standards is probably one of the most common things you get. And this is where people get in the anxiety zone and actually are at greatest risk. So this is what you would most likely see where there's high expectations around, you know, targets, KPIs, results, and do it or else. So often people feel quite anxious. They don't want to speak up. There are lots of hiding and covering up. You know, they don't innovate. They don't step outside the box. Um, I had a great example of this when I was running a coaching session and um, this leader said to me, look at this text message I got from the um, general manager. And the text message said, um, you failed to hit the targets. This is what Excite got. This is what it must be. Fix it. Wow. Getting that, you know, that put him into a spin. He's like, you know, like we didn't get it because, and he had those reasons around what happened but it put him in the anxiety zone. He had high high performance standards but low psychological safety. There was no discussion with the boss around, you know, what could be different, what needed to happen, why it was the way that it was. Instead, it was just pure judgment. So, you know, that's a really good example and pretty typical example of what tends to happen in business. The utopia or what you'd want to see is high psychological safety where you can put your hand up, ask for help, provide um, innovative option solutions plus a push for high standards. So these businesses, they expect high performance and, and learning from their, their businesses. And as a leader, you want people to, you know, take risks. Um, you want to avoid unexpected or preventative failures. That's not okay to have a preventative failure or something that, you you know, you know that it should work out. If you make a mistake in that, in that that's not okay. But if you make a mistake in something that, has ever been tried or tested before, then that's okay because we can learn from that and, and adjust next time. So there's that psychological safety around how you treat failures and the two different types of failures. Um, and really the expectation is that, you know, everyone is is expected to step up and 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 challenge those boundaries and push more. Um, and by doing that, I guess, in a psychologically safe way, um, you get both the high psychological you know, high, high standards as well as safety because people are doing it in a safe environment. Um, you can actually measure where your business is at, you know, what quadrant they actually fit into 
um, to work out, you know, what, what do we need to work on here? You know, is it, is it around the standards or is it around, you know, the psychological safety of the business um, to work out, you know, a bit of a strategy around how to manage that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and, and maybe as part of the show notes, we'll sort of share that uh, that quadrant because I think that's a pretty interesting sort of uh, dynamic uh, to bear in mind. But I mean, just picking up on part of that que- uh, response on your part, what advice, you know, quickly would you give the gentleman that was uh, sharing the text? And obviously, it didn't have the desired effect. Um, obviously, there was a desire to communicate; they weren't where they needed to be. But you know, what would be the short uh, advice you give the individual that decided to send that message via yeah, text? Yeah, so the leader who sent the t- message. Yeah, yeah. What um, would you say? Look, yeah, you know, yeah. If you were coaching that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I would, you know, again, I'd be saying to him, look at that. You know, approach this as a curious inquirer. Go and seek information about why was that target not met? Mm. What what happened? What were the was there preventative failures? And that's a very different conversation. But were there potential mistakes or failures that, that were unanticipated or you know events outside their control? So treat it as a curious inquirer, uh, not as not as a judgment. Yeah, and I'm assuming that the individual, the recipient that got the text message, had high standards themselves. Oh. So they're already beating themselves up to a certain extent. So if you come at that from a a curious inquirer point of view, then the person would probably own, you know, why they didn't hit it and therefore be a bit more powerful or engaged around, okay, this is why we didn't hit it. These are my ideas around maybe how we rectify as opposed to being told via a text and, and obviously dramatically different sort of impact in terms of the engagement around the situation. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, um, being heard is obviously super important and opinions clearly count in that context. But uh, uh, Gallup found that uh, just three in 10 workers strongly agree that at work their opinions seem to count, um, but also noted that uh, by moving that ratio to six in 10 employees, which on the face of it isn't a big number, uh, organisations could realise a 27% reduction in turnover, a 40% reduction in safety incidents and a 12% increase in productivity. And that was uh, as part of the uh, Gallup State of the Workplace 2017 um, research. Uh, Is there an easy way to sort of bring that to life in organisations. And you touched on that notion before of trying to get that discretionary effort and the context of the market by and large, particularly in mining and infrastructure at the moment here in Australia is, and and, and, and obviously other environments like technology, et cetera, but there's a war for talent, you know, turnover's high, trying to attract people is, is hard um, and all that sort of stuff. So what's your sort of response around, you know, bringing that to life um, and, uh, you know, uh, allowing people to be heard and, and making sure those opinions are heard and, and maybe responded to. What's your sort of take on that? Yeah, so I think, again, you know, we did talk a little bit about it before is, is you know, good questioning, you know, and good listening is is mm-hmm. is really the, the key to that. And, I mean, with a lot of this, it's about embedding it in the systems and processes. So, you know, one of the things I did with another client is look at their performance review system. You know, what what are you actually capturing? What are the behaviours you're encouraging? And so one of the things um, that they implemented was one of their KPIs was actually around innovation and, you know, creation. So so getting them to behaviourally record, you know, have there been any actions or, or, you know, things that you've done that, you know, have helped someone else, you know, or, or that, you know, improve something. So it's around that productivity piece and that innovation piece and they've put that as part of their, you know, KPIs. 
Um, another business, you know, again, like I said with the questioning, looked at their safety investigation questions. You know, what are the type of questions we're asking here? Are they eliciting what we, are they more around judgment, right or wrong, or are they actually that curious inquirer? So businesses who are trying to, I guess, embed them in current systems um, are the ones who are being really successful in this in this space because you know what it's like. It's easy to have these ideas and you go to a course and you learn about, you know, questioning and then you come back to the real world and, you know, you, you're good for a week and you're trying to implement the strategies and then they, you know, you sort of fall back to your old habits. Um, so businesses that really try and embed them in their, you know, KPIs or their safety processes and systems um, are the ones who are, who are really being quite successful here. Yeah, I like that answer. Obviously, the, the importance of, of questions and no doubt, obviously, the listening and then the acting on some of those things that come out of those things. But uh, I think the other part of that that's key to make sure it's sustainable and consistent is embedding that in your system. So I think it's easy to to go to your courses and learn and get all inspired and, and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, unless it's sort of embedded into a system, then often that will sort of fall away or fall by the wayside. So I think it's a good, uh, good takeaways here in terms of that. Um, now, I think this this next question is super interesting to me and I would have thought for most. And often, you know, you know we are today, you know we want to go, you know, in the future and you sort of understand that gap. But, wow, I mean, change management uh, is super hard, you know, shifting a culture from where it is today to where you want to be tomorrow and, and shifting those behaviours and systems and everything else to where, you know, the idealistic sort of state. Yeah, and a simplistic you know, why if there's uh, a response around that or if there's a simple response, you know, how do organisations effectively manage change management within uh, within their business in your experience? Yeah, so look, I, I sort of used to have a very simple um, model around this and I said to leaders there's really three basic needs that humans have. They have the need to feel safe, the need to feel like they belong and the need to contribute. And if you think about change with those three pillars, you really can use them as your guide, guiding light around your action. So, you know, how do you make someone feel cha- safe when they're, you know, you're going through change? Because obviously we all, you know, we all like change when it, except when it happens to us. Um, so safety is about giving them as much control as possible, so giving them as much information as possible around, you know, how that change actually affects them and, and what are the implications and what does it look like as, as best you possibly can because sometimes um, you don't, don't know all the answers. The second one is around belonging. So belonging is really around how can you actually get them to be part of the journey? So how can they actually, um, how, how, how will, will their team actually be part of that journey? What will that look like for their team? Um, and the third one is around con- contribution. So how, how are the things that they do and say going to influence the outcome and, and what can they do to support others who are going through that change to give them some sort of sense of control? Um a sort of example around this I used to use was the the floods, the Brisbane floods that we had, and um, you know there was obviously significant amount of you know crisis. Um, you know there was lots of you know people having to be managed, you know to to basically perform um, you know emergency response. And I said that even though um, obviously it's not it was a change in a way, um, but it's really that it was a really good example of those three pillars being enacted. You know, it made there was lots of safety communication. There was lots of communication around, you know, where the floods were, where you needed to go. There was a real sense of belonging in that crisis. So there was, you know, lots of analogies. You know, we're Queenslanders, we're tough, we can stick through this. 
And then that contribution piece, people were told what they could do to to help this situation be better. So they, you know, are told to dip their shovels and head down to XYZ Street, you know, to help sort of clear some mud off the footpath. So that was that's a really nice example of those three basic needs um, that leaders can really harness in times of, you know, uncertainty and change. Um, and really probably uh, principles to, to use, you know, obviously in business as well. No, I think that's a, it's a, a really simple answer to a complex dynamic. Um, I think some really good takeaways on, on that. So, I mean, you've been really good in, uh, in sharing uh, a lot of key uh, aspects today that I think are super relevant and valuable. But um, I guess I just sort of wanted to further to the experience that we noted before in terms of what you've achieved and what you've done thus far but um, how do people find out a little bit more about you and your new business, which is super exciting, uh, Humanology uh, Group? Mm. How, do, how do people sort of find out more about that? Yeah, look, um, you can go to our website, www.humanologygroup.com.au. Um, find us on LinkedIn and there'll be some more information um, up there and some more blogs to come. And, and just on that, you've been really, really good, uh, Naomi, today about sort of sharing some of the, the, the key sort of notions around growth mindset, uh, psychological safety and uh, various aspects that sort of tie into that. Um, and you're kicking off this new business, which is uh, super exciting, um, and Humanology Group. So where can people find out a little bit more about you and the business? And I guess once you sort of ask that question, um, you know, I guess I'm keen to understand why you started this company and well, yeah, essentially what's the purpose of the organisation. Yeah, sure. Um, you can go to our website, um, www.humanologygroup.com.au and there'll be some more information there. I mean, the reason for starting this was I was really working in that wellbeing space and lots of businesses were implementing fabulous initiatives to really help, you know, their individual's wellbeing. But the power was really around the organisational health and, you know, what I found is that once, if you've got people doing good work in a good place, it actually manages their well-being and is such a protective fat factor. So I started to look at, well, how can we actually, how can we focus on that? And what I found was, look, psychological safety is key to actually making it a great place to work, but it's also key to actually business performance. So it helps businesses deliver on innovation. It helps them deliver on diversity and inclusion. It helps them de deliver on growth. So really bringing it back to simplifying, if I can help businesses achieve a culture of psychological safety through their leaders and their systems and processes, then you're killing a lot of birds with one stone. So hopefully... Yeah, um, no. No, I love that and maybe uh, being less reactive and sort of more front-loading on that side of being more proactive in that regard. But, um, you know, I, I guess sort of just in closing, uh, there's no doubt you're super, you're really well regarded um, across the, the, the sector and, and what you do uh, already and, and no doubt I think uh, with this new organisation and, and what you've done today to sort of, you know, in a simple fashion unpack um, what psychological safety is and the, and the benefit and the upside to individuals and organisations really, really good. Uh, I love, uh, you know, the journey that you're on uh, individually. I love the fact that your seven-year-old's now on this journey, um, being supported by a teacher, which is fantastic. I love to see more of that. Um, but I think the thing that you're doing most, uh, Naomi, is, you know, helping people and businesses become the best version of themselves, which I think is really, really cool. So you're having a really big impact, and I'm really, really grateful that you took the time to uh, share some of these aspects today. And no doubt there's a lot of key takeaways for those that uh, will listen to it. So really grateful, and, and thanks so much for sharing those uh, those aspects. It's been really, really good. 
Thanks very much for your time, Sean. Cheers, Naomi. Thanks. Bye. On the back end of that podcast here today, I think there's some really great, simple takeaways from uh, Nomi that we can sort of uh, seek to take to ourselves as individuals or our organisations. So uh, I think um, really impactful stuff that we covered. So hopefully you guys enjoyed. Uh, if you did enjoy, feel free to pass on the details or you know rate or follow the podcast. Uh, we're building up a great uh, listener base and get some really good feedback. Uh, so really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen and really hope you enjoyed the podcast with Naomi today. Thank you.